Welcome to this episode of the Voices Heard Lives Empowered mini-series by Power. You can visit the Power website on www.power.net, that's power spelt P-O-H-W-E-R.net, and you can also contact our national number on 0300 023. Today we've got a conversation with a lady called Jo, who volunteers for Cruise Bereavement in Nottinghamshire. Cruise Bereavement is a national charity that supports people who have been bereaved. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Jo, can I ask you a little bit about what Cruise does as an organisation? Yes, certainly. Well, I think our official title is, is Cruise Bereavement Care. So the, so the word cruise isn't actually a, um, an acronym and it's certainly nothing to do with um, the Mediterranean or anything. <laughs> um, but we, well, I'll tell you a little bit about cruise first, briefly. Um, we've been going since 1959, so we've just had our 60-year Diamond Jubilee, was that right? I don't know. Um, uh, celebrations, that's the right word. Um, it, do you want me to tell you... A teeny bit about the history, would that help? Yeah, no, I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, it was started by a woman called Margaret Torrey, um, and she was a bit of a rebel, apparently, sort of woman who didn't pay her taxes because she didn't agree with what they were being spent on. And she, um, I think it was after the war, she realised that there were um, over 2 million widows under the age of, I think it might have been 50, Obviously, men dying in the war. That's and they shocking, all isn't had it? Sort of common problems, loneliness, poverty, blah, blah, blah. Um, so she set up an organisation, um, uh, which I think was called Cruise even then, um, and they produced leaflets and things. Apparently, she used to do lots of practical leaflets, and the most popular of which was one called How to Worry Usefully. But it's out of production, which is a shame. Um <sighs> And then eventually the organisation grew and evolved and um, they would support men as well. And now we exist to support anyone who is struggling through their grief, through the bereavement process, whoever they might have lost. So whilst um, uh, impressionistically, it does tend to be mainly skewed towards people who've lost partners or parents. It can be children, it can be your best friend, it can be a colleague. So there is no bar to who we support. So we support by email. Um, so, sorry, we're, we're working towards supporting by email and chat room um, facilities, but we do telephone support, but mainly our models one-to-one. Whilst we do have a number of paid staff in terms of administrative functions all our bereavement supporters or bereavement volunteers bvs we call ourselves note we don't call ourselves counselors and there's a very specific reason for that you know counselor implies a that you might have qualification um in counseling which some of us do but it's not a requisite but also that there is something wrong that someone needs to put right and that's not what grief's about. It, it's about holding somebody's hand as you, you know, walk through, walk up a very difficult path. 
So all our BVs, our bereavement volunteers, are then allocated clients. Initially, as you can imagine, we try to match people according to the experience of the volunteer. And, and we support them on a one-to-one basis, face-to-face generally, but of course, more latterly, it's been far more often, well, we can't do face-to-face. No, recently. no, and, and, and it's it's horrendous, isn't it? It's the same for, for power, actually, at the moment. But we'll we'll, we'll come to, to, to talk about that. But if, if you don't mind me asking you first, Joe, what, what led you to get involved with, with cruise bereavement in the first place? Well, I've been involved since 2011. I've always uh, had a sort of inclination towards some kind of helping profession. In fact, that wasn't my profession. I my, my profession is the law, which some would say is absolutely not helping. Um, and before that, I had worked with the Samaritans. I suspect that my own bereavements were a significant part of it. But interestingly, um, maybe surprisingly for people who, who might be listening to this podcast, that's not always the case. In fact, I do remember one woman who, um, obviously we preserve anonymity here, one of our BVs, she trained because she had killed somebody in a car accident and it was i suppose her way of putting back i don't know so that there can be a, a myriad of reasons we yeah. do get a lot of people who are in the process of training for professional counseling careers and they acquire experience with us but then you get quite a few older hacks such as myself and um yeah, I, I think probably um, my own personal experiences uh, would have driven me a little bit towards thinking uh, sure. this is my form of helping. So there's, there's a lot of very, very kind of powerful personal experiences that people have had that have led them to, to be in a position to help others, I suppose. And that, regardless of all the training you have, I suppose that the, the lived experience is something that, you know, you wouldn't ideally want to have but I suppose that that is beneficial in helping others who are going through the same sort of thing well I I think that's really interesting because I suspect it is but of course what I mean I lost my husband so obviously I feel an enormous empathy towards people particularly if they're at the same sort of age when they lost theirs but of course I don't know what I would have been like otherwise do you see what I mean yes yeah you know I, I have uh, recently I've had two parents of, of young people who have committed suicide I don't know whether my empathy would have been different had I lost a child through suicide but I, I guess when you have been through a really difficult journey yourself and come out whole or reformed or, or fully functional eventually at the other end this is quite a strong word but you might even feel a little evangelical in wanting to say to people, you know, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, you don't sit them down on the first day and say you'll be okay. Although sometimes you can tell, sometimes you get a feeling, but clearly it's not a, it's a somewhat clumsy way to say, well, I see you've um, put your makeup on and done your hair today, so it looks like you're going to get through okay. That's not what they want to hear. No. And of course, it could be completely wrong. No, okay. So, so kind of when when you suffered your own your own loss then were, were cruise bereavement available to you was it a service that you were aware of at that time that's really interesting as well because i had never heard of cruise it was 1998 never heard of cruise 
don't think I really got to hear about them probably until about six, seven years after that when a friend of mine worked as a supporter for them. So I like to think that we've gathered a bit in our selling our brand. Is that really cringy? But in making the public aware of our service. I mean, I do remember at the great uh, consistent behest of friends going to see a grief counsellor going once and it didn't work for me. So grief support of any nature, the type that we offer, type uh, professional counsellor might offer, it's not for everybody. But you never know till you try. You see. Yeah. I think um, that's that's a, a really good point that that it's such a subjective thing, isn't it? And um, I suppose some people cope better than others, you know, based on a number of circumstances, like where they are in their life and how how expected the loss was, I suppose, and, and those sort of things. You're you're so right. In fact, maybe maybe we can recruit you on our next course. Um, <laughs> But I think the stage of life matters a lot. To me, the worst thing that could possibly happen would be to be widowed in your 60s. Because I think, well, I was in my 30s. To me, the only sensible, viable alternative was to start again. And I've been with my new partner 20 years now. But when you see people who had plans for retirement, um, the children off their hands, so the focus of kids has gone. Maybe they've retired, so the focus of the job has gone. And they're snatched of 20 years of golden retirement with somebody they've managed to knock along with perfectly satisfactorily for 30, 40 years. That, that's such a fascinating way of looking at it, Jay, because my, my instinctive thought on that would be that the younger you are to lose your partner would be more devastating. But I, I, mm. I completely see your point of view that you are still within the world of work and, you know, you still have other mm. commitments. Perhaps that, although it's probably no less devastating, if not more devastating, you at least you have the kind of distractions to get you through and sort of... Um... Yes, and I, I, I suspect if somebody had asked me before my husband died, I would have said exactly what you've just said. Well, what could be worse than to you know, lose a husband who you were sort of living your prime with? But I also think it's interesting because even in the most desperate of bereaved circumstances, you know, people who might have lost a child through suicide, you know, to me, that, that's just such a challenge. People are interesting because they always seem to be able to think of a situation that would have been worse. Now, I used to think that was people beating themselves up not allowing themselves to grieve but I've thought about it a lot and I, I think that's a sort of survival mechanism you know it could have been worse they could have been murdered you know they could have um, been drowning at sea and shouting for help and nobody came to get them so I just think that's a bit of a human reaction absolutely I, I think it, it just just shows you as well doesn't it that that way that we're all kind of connected as human beings that we that we find that need to compare our grief with with others and kind of compare our circumstances with others as a kind of coping mechanism. Yeah, I mean, if you gave people you know, five different death scenarios and asked them to put, not, not the one would be as, as, as crude as this, you know, which is the worst, I think it would depend, people would have it all differently because it would depend on your stage in life, your support network, um, maybe whether you had a faith, whether you had um, other children even 
I suppose it all comes out to it's different for everybody. So if we could talk a little bit then, Joe, about the support that you can offer. Now, I know that obviously what you can offer right now and what you would normally offer if we weren't in lockdown are two different things. But if you could perhaps talk about what you did before lockdown and what, what you're able to provide now, that would be, I think that would okay. be really helpful. I mean, would it help to include in this the sort of process by which people contact us and we offer our service to them generally? That would be brilliant, please. If, if, okay. if you're able to make people aware okay. of how they can get in touch, that's fantastic. Yeah, and then I'll evolve from that, how it's different at the moment, yeah. That's great. Okay, so... People can self-refer um, or they can be referred through. Well, they have to actually ring up themselves. But um, probably, I think the statistic is around 50% or even more tend to have been recommended to come to us by their GP. Classic situation. When people are bereaved, they often get to the point that they think they're going nuts. They're not sleeping. They can't concentrate. And where do we end up when it's all falling apart? Our doctor's surgery. So we do get a lot of people being recommended to come to us by GPs, or it could be by their church, like that old lady, their children. So um, they will somehow or other have got hold of our number. And if they ring the national helpline, they'll be told, given the local number for their specific cruise, because we are all over the country. It's good. good we've got a good websites. So there's a lot of information on them. Um, people phone our admin staff we'll talk to them, not on a counselling basis, but as you can imagine, sometimes it, it ticks into that a bit because people are very distressed when they ring us. You know, It's not like, you know, ringing the dentist. We don't make them an appointment there and then. We send them um, some information about what we do and about 50% of people then get back to us, which is interesting because some people would have just had a crisis of the moment and then gone back into some degree of coping with their existing coping structures so when they come back to us yes thank you very much i've read it all and i would like to go on your list we get them in for an assessment interview different cruise uh, areas around the country might differ a little bit but this is how we do it in nottinghamshire and we try to get them an assessment interview there's a few of us who are trained to assess which is a first opportunity to talk about your situation to a stranger. Occasionally, we do find people aren't suitable for us because maybe their issues are better dealt with by a mental health practitioner, for example. And I don't know what the statistic is, but most of the time we we, we say, yes, fine. You know, Would you like to go on our waiting list? Sure. We, in common with, I think, quite a few other um, sort of talking therapy type organisations, we offer six sessions and they can be week on week on week. Sometimes you can organise with your allocated supporter, and of course it will be the same EV, um, and we do have the facility to apply to give two extra ones. So that that's really what happens, and the default mode has always been face-to-face. If somebody wants telephone, because, for example, they can't come to us, then we can offer telephone. Is there a waiting list for the service? I mean, it, it depends on where you are, but we have had a waiting list of as much as 20 weeks, which is absolutely awful for people. We do warn them, but it, it, it's very difficult. 
So Joe, could you talk a little bit about how things have changed and how you're supporting people since the coronavirus lockdown? We are moving towards offering Zoom. We, we, we started up um, not offering Zoom, but that's now been discussed at area. And when our, our admin staff who, who do the, what we call the allocations and referrals, they'll um, ask people whether they want telephone or, or Zoom. Um, and, and also in the future, we've decided that we will continue to say face-to-face or telephone. So if, if we could move on to talking a little bit about the, the sort of the situations that you're finding with, with people in, in the coronavirus uh, lockdown. So are you, are you receiving referrals from people who have been bereaved as a result of, of COVID-19? Yeah. I haven't. We had an area committee meeting last week because I'm a branch rep for mine and nobody was aware of anyone in our area. And of course, it's proving a negative, but um, I would imagine that the reason for that is, by and large, the stats show that people don't tend to contact outside organisations for support until maybe three months. You know, I mentioned earlier how we sort of discourage it too early in normal circumstances. Um, so it may be that they're just not coming through yet. But, you know, I can remember it. My immediate grieving period was, you know, there was just people everywhere, you know, picking you up and uh, making sure you ate and trying to do the right thing. So all I can say is immediate experiences, they're not coming through yet. So so is there any, any kind of advice that you could give to, to people who have suffered a bereavement and who are kind of coping with that in the current situation where they're not able to, to, to meet with family in person as much? Well, I, I think there is a danger people will you know, hide under the bed sort of thing. And I think that if they can bring themselves... We've, we've all had that feeling, haven't we? Even absent bereavement where, you know, you've been meaning to make that phone call, meaning to make that phone call. You can't be bothered, you can't be bothered. But you know when you do? You feel really great at the end of it. So I, I would say if people can keep up lines of communication, but equally, and perhaps more importantly, for their friends and family to keep up communication with them because it's much easier to for someone bereaved to receive contact than to initiate it yes you see what I mean? yeah absolutely so yeah. so you are if you are particularly grief-stricken and unable to reach out to people I suppose you will be reliant on people contacting you and showing that compassion towards you yes don't do the elephant in the room thing I, I run some courses for Cruise National for outside clients and we, we do a variety of things we've done them with banks and insurance people and Department of Health and Social Care and that sort of thing and people are very generous in sharing their experiences and one woman told me well she told the group she'd gone back to work after her mother had died quite suddenly and um, nobody had said a thing nobody had said absolutely anything and she was desperately hurt you know, even, okay, people aren't going to work as they used to, but, you know, an email saying, I'm thinking about you, I'm going to give you a call later, just something. But people are bad enough in normal times for, I mean, I know it sounds like a cliche, but I have had so many people say, and they actually walked to the other side of the road because they don't know what to say. Yeah, which actually makes me quite angry because I think, how bloody British. First time I <laughs> 
you know, somebody's lost someone they've loved and then your neighbour makes it their own problem because they don't know what to say. Well, actually, that's not such a big problem, is it? So, yeah, advice. Um, if people who have been bereaved can possibly make communication sales great, but if people around them can keep those lines open. And, you know, maybe even original, being a little bit more original, you know, maybe a note through the door. Sure. Um, Let- letters you mentioned. I think that's yeah, a really, yeah. it is a really nice thing to receive, isn't it, a letter? It's such a rare thing now. It is. I'm on a bit of a letter writing campaign at the moment. But I've had two friends who've lost mothers in during this crisis, neither COVID-related. They were, they were elderly. Um, but, you know, again, the elderly thing is an interesting thing because we are seeing that it tends to be older people who are dying of COVID, not exclusively by any means. And people have this, well, they've had a good innings. But, you know, when it's somebody you've loved all your life, that actually isn't much of a consolation. It's the person you've often loved the longest, your parent, for example. And um, good innings or no, didn't really help. That's uh, that's a really interesting point, Joe. I, I think because that is such a common phrase, and I, I know that I've said that plenty of times in the past about, but you know, I my have. grandparents and things, things like that when they when they passed away. Um, but but like you say, you know, the longer somebody's lived, and the longer two people have lived together, you know, the more shared experience they have. So it, it goes back to that thing, doesn't it? That I suppose. Um, the commonly held belief or my belief before I started talking to you today was that the younger you are when you're bereaved, the more difficult it would be. But, but you've, you know, you, I think that's a really important point that the, the longer that you've spent with somebody, um, the more difficult you find it to adapt to life without them. Yes. The chances of reestablishing, I mean, you know, people do reestablish relationships. In fact, one of my very early clients, and you, you, you know, you, there's the odd one that sticks out in your mind. I remember she came to see me. She was probably early 60s. And she sat down and said, I shouldn't be here. And I said, why? And she said, I got engaged at the weekend. And she'd met somebody, um, I think within her church. I think she was quite involved in her church. And um, I knew exactly how she, I, I, I really knew because I've been through that found happiness again and there's a guilt there um, and she just needed to talk about her guilt and things like that sure yeah. so I had another lady she was in her early 60s and her dad had died and they obviously had and he was I think something like 92, 93 so yeah you know good innings um, and I remember it was just before when Brexit was you know at its absolute furore um and she said, I I so miss the fact I'm not going to be able to talk about Brexit with him. Because he would have loved. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's the thing, isn't it? That's incredible because I, I can't I can't think of anybody that I would miss talking about Brexit with. <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe particularly your parents. Yeah, that's parents. it. That's it. Yeah, um, yeah. I just wanted to ask you, Joe, about a, a, another um, kind of point that you raised in the article, actually, where you where you talk about the fact that um, p- people have been un- unable to be with a partner or a relative um, at the end because of coronavirus yeah. and obviously the restrictions. So that, that 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 was really interesting to me. So 
Would you say that being there at the point that somebody passes away is is something that's really important for the grieving process then? That is my experience from people I have talked with. Um, and my personal experience, I, I was with my, my husband when he died. And, and it's not even just being there maybe at the point of death, um, because I don't know how things are progressing in hospitals at the moment. But it's it's being there all because if people die of COVID, it's a, a fairly rapidly progressing condition, as I understand it. So it's being able to be there as much as you can in the run up. So even though they might be allowing people, perhaps when they think there's only a few minutes left, I, I'm not quite sure what they're doing. But it is important. And I have had people with terrible guilt. You know, one woman I remember was as simple as she'd gone for a pee. You know, people have to go for a pee and then he died. I mean, interestingly enough, there's a lot of research on people both hanging on for the right people to be there before they die, but also almost choose to die when their loved ones are out the room to share them the pain. I, I don't know. But mm. it, it is important. Um, and... You know, even visit. I don't know what the rules are now, but I suspect you can't visit people in the chapel of their rest. Sure. So it's the reality of it, you know. That's um, and and people talk a lot about the moment of death. That's really important to them because they can't talk about it. It's hard to talk about it with your friends and family because you, they like to say, oh, 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 "Oh, don't distress yourself," but you want to distress yourself. You want to pick up the wound sometimes. It is. It's really interesting that, isn't it? Because people, you know, potentially have lived a very long, fulfilled life, and it's just those those final hours that that. that um, I mean, I I know my very limited experience of grief, but when you know, rel- you know, elderly relatives and things have passed away, it's kind of that is is part of the process. It, you know, to talk about that specific point when somebody was about to pass away as well. It's really interesting that that's something that people seem to need to Maybe, discuss. And you see, it may be that, you know, at that point when that person is um, passing on, dying, call it what you like, I'm, I'm not very good for this, um, you think that they're not going to say anything exciting and great. You know, that me and my husband will probably say in his dying moments, you know, don't forget to put the bins out on Friday. <laughs> but, but it's a fact that if you're not there, you you think you've been cheated of that, that you know that last I I love you. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is a very personal story, and I'm quite surprised I'm sharing it really, but uh, but I'm happy to. But I mean, my husband died of um, an overwhelming infection, septicemia. It was all very quick, um, and he had to be sedated. So although I was there with him when he died, uh, I he never said anything to me once he'd been sedated. But I had, I got an obsession in my head about wanting to know what his last words were. And I remember my best friend went and spoke to the nurse and he said, and she told him that his last words were say goodnight to my wife. So that was really important. That's so, yeah, so, so so moving though. And I I really appreciate you sharing that with me, Joe. And and obviously... after 20 years 22 years it's much easier to but um, yeah 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, it's a phrase, isn't it? Famous, famous last words, and it and it's something that we we do seem to be focused upon as as a race again, isn't it? To to to, to kind of um to, to know there seems to be added weight, doesn't there, to be that to those last few minutes, those last few hours, you know, that that yeah. it kind of counts for more almost than all than all that's gone before. It's the last opportunity. So, you know, whether they were going to be dead forget to put the bin out or not, um, it's what people think they might have missed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that leads leads me on, uh, Joe, to another another thing. Uh, I, I'm going to wrap it up in a in a little while because I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But but this has been well, that, that's fine. Yeah. That has been yeah. fantastic. But an area that we've not really talked about, especially relating to coronavirus, is um, funerals, um, mm. which is something obviously with the with the limits to how many people are actually allowed at a funeral at the moment. I imagine that's another kind of point of real sort of trauma for for, for people who I I know somebody whose um, partner passed away during the lockdown, and I know for a fact that had there not been any restrictions on the amount of people at the funeral, there would have been hundreds there, and and, and the fact that that hasn't happened is mm. must be very sad, very traumatic for the immediate family who are grieving for that person well i mean a, a friend of mine has lost a very good friend who was only in her early 50s and um has found that she is not able to go to the funeral because there's only going to be i don't know a dozen i think um and she's finding that very distressing i mean there's all sorts of things like people are forced to choose who's going to be there Imagine, remember all that nonsense about you were going to be able to choose like 10 people to socialise with. You know, we were all panicking that nobody would ask us. Sure. Um, but, you know, that, that thing, oh, you know, nobody likes me enough even to invite me to their funeral. But but that difficulty in, in choosing. But another thing that people don't often think about is, um, have you ever heard of death cafes? No. Sort of, I think there might be a Swedish movement where people just get together. It's not a self-help group. It's it's just where people like talk about the untalkable. But anyway, I we had a somebody from the death. This is a little bit circuitous, but someone from the Death Cafe movement um, who's one of our BVs. And she did a little training session about it. And one of the things she threw into the ring was who's planned their own funeral. And um, I said, oh, I wouldn't. You know, the kids will know what I want. Blah blah blah. And a colleague of mine said, I've planned mine. She said, um, I know who I want there. Uh, I know what music I want. She said, I don't have any kids. I want So the dead person may not be able to have their wishes about it fulfilled. You know, yeah, I, mean, if, I know if... that's a sort of um, slightly separate thing, but... No, I, I think... I think that's think really that. yeah no I I think that's a really important point because it, it it's weird it, it is something that people think about. I, I mean that sounds really weird but I you know it's something that I've thought about you know and and um, you yeah. know like you you kind of want to it's almost like your last um, opportunity to make an impression on the world isn't it so yeah, it I understand is. the that that kind of motivation to almost like kind of choreograph that. You know, I understand that that you want it to be, be a something. do that you'll be happy to attend yourself. Yeah, absolutely, you? absolutely, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but um, 
you know, people think, well, I know so-and-so would want a really good bash. You know, they would have had a jazz band. And I mean, imagine a wedding without hugging. A funeral yeah. without being able to hug is even worse. I mean, I, I anticipate that when we do have people that have been bereaved through COVID, and as I said, um, my experience is they're not coming through yet, that people talking about the funeral not being what they wanted or expected or the dead person would have wanted or expected it could be quite a big thing, actually. Definitely, mm. definitely. I mean, people talk about memorial services, but the the, the the spontaneity, if you like, of the celebration of grief sounds a bit grand, doesn't it? Um, it's gone, hasn't it? The moment's gone. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, memorial services are, um, I guess, something that are going to become very prevalent next, you know, next year and when we're when we're out of this mess that we're in at the moment. But it, th- th- there's something about the immediacy of, of grieving uh, at the time. I mean, like some some countries, the, the funerals held on the on the same day as the the, the passing away, isn't there? Um, yes. And and so to to have to wait so long to kind of have that final moment of closure must be something that's very distressing for for people as well. Yeah. Even down to practical things like you know people's employers are far more likely to give you time off for a, a, a funeral when the death's a week away um, than six months later when it all sounds like what time off for a party. Yeah, no, I, I completely, yeah, I completely know yeah. what you mean with that. That that's great, yes. Jay. So I'm, I'm I'm so grateful for 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 the time that you've that you've given us today, and and it's it's been it's been been a real eye eye opener for me, and, and a really fascinating. Well, you've so, been a great person to talk to. You'd make a very good bereavement supporter. Thanks very much. That's really <laughs> yeah, nice of you. <laughs> Although I think you've got quite a lot on your place at the moment with an eight month old. A child. I do, I do definitely. You can yeah, see these yeah. bags under my eyes, can't you? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so just to wrap up, then, um, it, it's fine if you don't have it to hand because I know that I can never remember my contact information for power. But, but would you be able to right. kind of let us know where people can, where where people can uh, find out a bit more about cruise and and where they where they can actually contact you to to make a referral. Yeah, um, so really you want the website address and I'll email that through. But That's great. I mean, what I would say is that Google Cruise, you'll get the national number and they will direct you in the right direction. Brilliant. Um, you know, so, but, but I will get the right link to the right web, website. That, that's so great. And what I'll do, I'll, yeah. add, I'll add that to the end. Um, you know, like after after the kind of conversation, I'll, I'll add a little bit in of my audio and, and i'll give the give the details so that they're on there we do have a national help telephone helpline so i mean i'm actually going on some training for it this week um so if people can't get telephone support because again there'll still be a waiting list sure one-to-one support they there is that option okay that's, that's not just a referral and allocation that is somebody for them to talk to that will be staffed by fully trained volunteers. Ah, that's great.
I just want to thank Joe again for coming on the podcast. Uh, that was um, really fantastic, really interesting, very emotive, um, and I've learned a lot from that. So I hope that it helps the listeners to uh, to know where to go uh, if you find yourself in a situation where you're you need a bit of support with a bereavement. Um, so the the website address for Cruise Bereavement is cruise.org.uk. So that's cruise spelt C-R-U-S-E dot org dot U-K. Um, and the national helpline number is 0808-808-1677. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to this episode of the Voices Heard Lives Empowered mini-series by Power. You can visit the Power website on www.power.net. That's power spelt P-O-H-W-E-R.net. And you can also contact our national number on 0300-020-0093. Today we've got a conversation with a lady called Jo, who volunteers for Cruise Bereavement in Nottinghamshire. Cruise Bereavement is a national charity that supports people who have been bereaved. We hope you enjoy the podcast.